Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads, with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing The Bombard Story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're on Chapter 8. Chapter 8. Lone Voyager. It was at this stage that I began to notice a change in Jack. His enthusiasm was ebbing little by little, and I learnt some time later that he had told one of his friends, If Alain keeps us here much longer, I shall never be able to leave. In the meantime, offers of help continued to arrive. Monsieur Clement made us a present of fish and tackle. The swimming club received us in princely fashion. Mouginot contacted one of General Leclerc's old radio operators named Le Guen to get us a wireless set. Monsieur Tapin, a stationer, gave us a pair of binoculars, and Monsieur Bergeret helped us out in a number of ways. In spite of all this active assistance, the wait became interminable. Jack always found a new reason for putting off our departure, either the wind, the tide, or the weather. He was the navigator, and I had to conform. But one day, a taxi driver told me what everyone in Tangier seemed to know, apart from myself. Jack had made up his mind to prevent me from continuing and was convinced that I would never attempt it alone. Terribly disheartened for a moment, I was on the verge of giving up. But then I thought what people would say. You see, there is nothing in it. The whole theory's nonsense. I knew it was not nonsense, and I was going to prove it. I would go on. Brought to the point, Jack finally agreed. But he was now without any enthusiasm. First of all, he suggested that we should stay in the Mediterranean, but I insisted on our original plan. The American naval attaché with whom we discussed the matter waved a handful of pilot charts and announced firmly that we would never get as far as Casablanca, much less the Canaries. These pilot charts are specially edited by the British and American navies, brought up to date every two or three years, and give full information about the prevailing winds and currents. Although outside certain clearly defined areas, the information is subject to local fluctuations. I had spent a year studying the ocean currents, and I insisted that what we were trying to do was feasible. It was not too late in the year, and I was convinced that over the next month we stood the best chance of success. After objecting again to the state of the tide, the winds and the lack of charts, Jack agreed, with rather bad grace, to make a start on Monday the 11th of August. Knowing that he was by no means convinced, I started to worry. All he had to do was to alter course while I was asleep, and I would wake up again in the Mediterranean. If we were going to have to spend our time watching each other, we might just as well give up the idea of setting off. However, the wind had become favourable, and was likely to hold for about three days. Here, was an admirable opportunity to pass the Straits of Gibraltar and defeat the current which flows constantly into the Mediterranean. We were towed out by a Spanish ship, but imagine my anxiety when, instead of giving orders to make for the West and the Atlantic, Jack told them to set course for Cape Malabata. This was off to the east, towards the Mediterranean, but he argued that we needed to seek shelter until the wind had died down a little. The sea was certainly quite rough, but if we did not take advantage of the favourable wind, we would never be able to pass the narrows. Somehow, the straits had become a symbol. 
I knew we had to force this passage to leave the Mediterranean behind and venture out into the Atlantic. The great ocean's challenge had become an obsession with me. The Spanish ship carried us steadily eastward, and we finally stopped off a little beach almost underneath a house belonging to a friend named Count Ferretto Ferretti. We spent the whole of Tuesday in idleness. On Wednesday morning, the wind was still in our favour, but Jack set off for Tangier at about nine o'clock to make a few last-minute purchases with the intention of returning as soon as possible. It was the last day we could expect a favourable wind, and it meant that we had to leave by six o'clock in the evening at the latest. When the time came, there was still no sign of Jack. I was strung up to breaking point, feeling that if I hesitated, all would be lost. I scribbled a note for Jack. I am taking the responsibility of leaving alone. Success can only come if we believe in it. If I fail, then it will be the fault of a non-specialist. Au revoir, old boy. Alain. This I gave to a customs officer named Jean Stoddle, and then, with his help, put out to sea, borne along by a combination of anger, ambition, and confidence. My first task was to pass the straits and gain as much sea room as possible in order to pick up the canary's current. I was frightened of the coastal rocks, and being so inexperienced, I tried to keep as far out to sea as possible. I was so absorbed in my fight to break into a new world that I was hardly aware of my loneliness. For when one passes from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic, it's not just a question of rounding a point. A difference of a few miles involves entering another dimension and another age. Even the terms of reference change. Time must be counted in weeks instead of days and distances in hundreds of miles instead of tens. Moreover, in order to gain this world, I and my little boat had to undergo an almost impossible ordeal, like some story from the Arabian Nights. Anyone who has seen a river burst its banks or the sea pour through broken dikes with a great flood of water sweeping away everything in its path will have an idea of the strength of the really tremendous current against which I had to fight. When the great salmon of the northern waters struggle against waters of this force, they are driven by the superhuman, tireless strength which comes of their love and mating. To drive me through the straits, I had my love of adventure, my burning desire to reach the open sea and the call of the ocean which thrust itself at me, as if to deny me any possibility of success. Happily, I had another ally to help me force this barrier, the east wind, but this wind could only be counted on for limited periods. Wind against current, that was the contest in which I had to become the master. The first night, I did not dare take a wink of sleep, because the slightest inattention on my part would have found me driven back into the Mediterranean. The wind blew strong the whole night as I skated over the surface of the current. There was certainly no lack of light, with all the ships crisscrossing around me. I gradually lost... Cape Spartle from view, and when I glimpsed it again through the morning mist to the southeast, it seemed that I was well past it. During the morning, while the wind appeared to have blown itself out, the current seemed to redouble its efforts. I tried to get across it. Though I made distance to the south, the land seemed to be sliding away to my right. I was absolutely exhausted, 
but I knew I had to complete the passage or give up altogether. I was convinced there must be some way of breaking through. Cape Spartle loomed larger and larger, but when I glanced at the compass I saw to my horror that the point of the cape was to the southwest. It was no good. I was right back in the straits. The Gibraltar current, full of miniature whirlpools, was buffeting my little craft. In my despair, I remembered from canoe trips as a child that it is always easier to make headway against a current nearer the shore. The mass of Cape Spartle grew larger and larger. Then I caught my breath. It seemed as if a large white villa directly on my beam was falling slightly behind. After a few agonizing minutes, hope became certainty. I was slowly creeping past the cape, and amidst the splendor of the setting sun on that memorable Thursday, I entered the promised ocean. A small countercurrent, an offshoot of the great hostile flood in the center of the straits, had come to my rescue and seen me to the rendezvous with my great adventure. Now that I was beyond all doubt in the Atlantic, the first attack of loneliness replaced the hours of tension. I recognized the enemy at once. It does not come in a sudden attack, but I was to become very familiar with its insidious, creeping effect during the long Atlantic days. While I was still near the coast, I knew I could hold it at bay. Its full effect would only come when I was on the high seas. At this stage, I had many immediate problems to attend to, which helped me to keep my mind off the loneliness. But I knew that once the lesser problems were solved, the big problem would be waiting for me. The first thing I had to decide was where I was going. Should it be Casablanca or the Canaries? On the face of it, the best alternative was Casablanca every time, but I had to take into account the reactions my solitary departure might have caused. There might well be people who considered me a dangerous lunatic whose boat and equipment should be confiscated in his own interests at the first landfall. It occurred to me that I might be well advised to touch nowhere, but I quickly dismissed the idea, remembering that my wife and friends would be in a ferment of worry when they knew that I was alone. Then a much more dubious thought entered my mind. After all, if they do stop me, it won't be my fault. It was a dangerously comforting thought, and I dared not let it develop, but I realized that my subconscious fears were at work. For the immediate future, I had to avoid being blown ashore on the nearest coast, the eventuality which most of the experts would be expecting, now that I was alone. With the wind from the north-northeast, I was able to set a course roughly west-southwest. If I could hold it, I would be able to follow the cord of the coastal arc between Tangier and Casablanca. The next thing to master was the art of navigation. I knew how to sail and I could read the compass, so I only needed to learn to use the crass ruler to determine my course. After a few tentative experiments, I found I could make it work. The principle was simple enough. All that was necessary was to place its point on the next meridian or parallel to the south, and then read the resultant figure which gave the theoretical course. Then it was a question of adding the declination according to a table which gave the true course. I spent the whole of Friday the 15th familiarizing myself with the use of this instrument. I saw very few ships. 
Fortunately, the fishing lines which Monsieur Clement had supplied me with were proving extremely efficient, so at least I had plenty to eat and drink. The catch consisted chiefly of ray's bream, the Brahma rai. I thought of Jack, and what a shame it was he was no longer with me. He had become discouraged at the very moment when the expedition had acquired interest and purpose. Now I was a real castaway. I began to keep a daily record of my blood pressure and pulse. The following day, Saturday the 16th, a ship altered course to hail me. It was a big trawler out of Algeciras, and the crew was duly astonished at the quantity of fish I had been able to catch. Fishing was proving a useful pastime, and helped me to forget the vagaries of the wind, which was proving exasperating. It sprang up regularly about midday from the right direction, and died down with equal regularity about eight o'clock in the evening. In the meantime, I started to work at the sextant. There seemed no great difficulty in measuring the height of the sun at midday. All I had to do was to adjust the instrument until the lower edge of the sun coincided with the horizon and the eyepiece. The scale then gave the angle between the sun and the observer and the horizon. But that was only the beginning. From this reading, I somehow had to calculate my latitude. With a little experience, I soon learnt how to do this with the help of navigation tables I had with me. I did not need to know the exact time. All that was necessary was to read off the angle when the sun had reached the summit of its trajectory. At least it was enough for the time being, as I was sailing more or less straight down the same meridian of longitude. Tangier lies roughly 8 degrees 15 minutes west, and Casablanca 5 degrees 50 minutes west, a difference of just over a degree of longitude which I could afford to ignore, and I was therefore able to disregard this factor. Every day, I checked the readings the sextant had given me by comparing them with points on the coast I could identify on my chart, and this enabled me to confirm my calculations, or rather, as far as the first few days were concerned, to invalidate them. At midday, by rare good fortune, the sea was usually perfectly calm and the line of the horizon showed clear and steady. During Saturday, I saw several aircraft on the regular Casablanca run, and they helped to reassure me that I was on course. Even so, I felt terribly alone. I began to debate in all seriousness whether I ought to continue or give up when I got to Casablanca. To be quite honest, an access of fear or at least a rising state of anxiety began to get the better of me. As long as I was within easy reach of the coast, nothing much could happen. But after that... Every time I looked towards the broad Atlantic, I was appalled by its immensity. Its expanse simply bore no relation to the sea I had just left. And yet, by Sunday the 17th of August, I was brimful of confidence, simply because I happened to have a good laugh in the early morning. It was still barely light when I woke up, and then, like a flash of lightning far off in the sky, I thought I saw a flying saucer. I grabbed my camera to film it only to realise my mistake. It was the planet Jupiter, which a roll of the boat had suddenly endowed with movement. I found the whole episode terribly funny, and confidence returned with my good humour. It only needs the smallest things to change one's mood. Over the course of the months to come, my morale came to depend more and more on the quick caprice of minor pleasures and disappointments. The day soon relapsed into its habitual monotony. A few ships passed, Every now and then a plane. 
I caught no sight of the coast, but at least I knew it was there, and this certainty buoyed up my confidence. During the evening, three lighthouses sent their friendly message of identification. I took two of them to be Medea and Port Lute. I crept into my sleeping bag in an optimistic frame of mind. I slept well every night with my rudder and my sail lashed in position, waking up two or three times a night, just long enough to glance at the compass and sail, see if there were any lights on the coast and assure myself that all was well. Then I would sink back to sleep amidst a calm which there was not enough breeze to disturb. It was as if the wind hesitated to interrupt my slumbers. But the morning of Monday the 18th brought a disagreeable surprise when I found myself enveloped in a thick sea mist. At least it taught me the value of the compass. With nothing else to do, I tried to learn something about astro-navigation in order to be able to determine my position without depending exclusively on the midday sun. Unfortunately, my handbook was in English, and its authors seemed intent on explaining why certain things should be done instead of describing how to do them. I got thoroughly confused, but not unduly depressed. Nevertheless, the sound of foghorns echoing through the mist started to get on my nerves. It was no longer just one, as in the incident at the Columbrettes, but an incessant chain of noise and echo. They sounded for all the world like some weird race of animals calling and answering each other, and their voices made me feel an utter loneliness more poignantly than ever before. I began to think back on the presence, the point of reference, the sort of ever-present lifebelt which my companion had represented. If only he would agree to team up with me again at Casablanca or in the Canaries. Amidst the loneliness, everything seemed unreal and mocking, and I wanted desperately to have someone there who would confirm my impressions or, better still, argue about them. There in the fog, I began to feel that a mirage would appear substantial and that I would be incapable of differentiating between the false and the true. I began to think of only one thing stopping at Casablanca and not moving another yard. My need for human company was overwhelming. Although the mist was lifting, I could see no sign of land and could distinguish no lights. I was absolutely alone. The land was hidden and the lights seemed to be out. I was just about to become completely discouraged when a tanker emerged from the mist and passed quite close. I hailed, Casablanca? Keep on the same course. Bon voyage, they called back. I spent most of Tuesday in a rage, which served to keep up my spirits. The days were still made up of eight hours of wind and sixteen of calm, and it seemed as if I would never pick up the trade winds. The number of aircraft appeared to increase, still confirming my course. I was getting near of that, there was no doubt. If only the wind would hold, I expected to make Casablanca that evening or the next morning. I worked out a whole series of sums in an attempt to decide how long I was going to need to get from the Canaries to the West Indies. As far as I could make out, it was going to take 50 or 60 days. My morale started to rise. I was still catching any amount of fish and one big raised bream fell right on top of me. In order to get out of my wake, it had jumped and had the bad luck to go the wrong way. I began to brood on how splendid it would taste fried. At 2.30 in the afternoon, I caught the reflection of the sun from the Fadella reservoirs and made a note in my log. 
fresh water this evening or tomorrow. At 8.30, I was a hundred yards from the Casablanca Mole. I had missed the entrance to the harbour and the swell prevented me from seeing the navigation boys. I decided to spend the night outside. The sound of waves breaking on the mole was not exactly reassuring, but I had quite a good night's sleep. It is much easier to sleep on the high seas than near the coast. For sailors, the land is much more dangerous than the sea. On Wednesday the 20th, there was a flat calm, so when I woke up, I got out the oars and rowed vigorously to the yacht club basin, where my arrival created a sensation. I was shown the morning paper, which carried a banner headline, The Heretic, Lost in the Gulf of Cadiz. Perhaps I had been luckier than I thought. Monsieur Orodeau, the special commissioner, arranged everything with the police and customs, no easy matter for someone returning from the grave, and Dr. Furniston, head of the Moroccan Fishery Board, presented me with a net for catching plankton. I shall have more to say later about the wonderful reception I received in Casablanca, but in spite of it, I made up my mind that nothing would prevent me from leaving on the following Sunday, the 24th, at 10 o'clock in the morning. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.